Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Mrs. Zaretta Hammond, a former writing teacher turned equity freedom fighter and author of the book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. Her book has become required reading in many teacher education programs and school districts. She has worked as a classroom teacher, a curriculum designer, and professional developer at organizations such as the National Equity Project. Mrs. Hammond is passionate about the intersection of equity and literacy. She has taught adolescent literacy to pre-service teachers, trained tutors and parents in reading development for struggling students of color, and sits on the board of two different literacy organizations. For the past 25 years, she's maintained a small, independent education consulting practice supporting schools doing deep, instructionally focused equity work. Welcome, Zaretta. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm super excited about this conversation. Oh, me too. Can you start by telling us about your background and how you got involved in the work of literacy? It was kind of a natural evolution. My grandparents are from Louisiana, and they were part of the last wave of that Black migration out of the Deep South. They headed up to the North. They went over to the West and ended in San Francisco. So my mom was two when they left Louisiana. And what I came to learn is both of them were illiterate, like a lot of African-American folks in the South. And my grandfather went to the sixth grade. My grandmother had learned to write her name in her early 70s. And I think it really kind of instilled in me, along with my mother's passion for book and her passion for education as kind of a right and privilege she wanted to ensure that we had, my brother, my sister, and myself. So I just really grew up understanding that reading was a powerful skill to have, and it allowed you to go places, not only with your imagination, we say that a lot with kids, but just to have a voice. So we want kids to have agency, but if they're not feeling like competent learners, then that's a really hard thing to come by. And I found no matter what setting I was in, literacy, reading, being able to do that at a high level, despite the fact that my mom was a teen mom, had three kids by the time she was 22, We were on welfare and her first job in the welfare to work program back in the day was as a library technician. So grew up around books and she exposed us to that. And so in that being surrounded, I just connected all the dots. I love that. I know you're very passionate about equity and that no matter where students go to school, that they deserve a high quality education. This is such a huge undertaking. What are the big rocks in moving this mountain? Yeah, I think the the quick reframe I would give is 
Rather than thinking about it as big rock, I would say, what are the small but high leverage things that need to shift? And and I pulled that from Michael Fullan, you know, who does change management, leadership in education, systems change, and Dr. Richard Elmore, who talks about the instructional core, right? Close to the ground, in the classroom, what's happening. So between those two, they talk about them in slightly different ways, but what they're really talking about is rather than us looking for big things that are going to shift, we need to purchase that new reading program, or we all need to be doing silent, sustained reading. Instead, what they both advocate is it really is the consistency around small, high leverage things. For example, if we're thinking about reading, how are we ensuring that all students know their sound spelling corresponds to a level of automaticity? How do we ensure that every classroom has intellectual curiosity in it and not a pedagogy of compliance? And where we're just managing, are they in their seats? Are they making noise? Or, right? So all of these come with other things that need to be true in order to create the right conditions. And once we get those conditions right in the classroom, then we're able to replicate that throughout a school. And that that kind of school can be replicated throughout a district. And sometimes we go at it the other way around, which is a little backwards. We're trying to change everything and it never really trickles down to the classroom. And even less often it trickles down to the student as the unit of change and the one that we wanna empower. Those are some great points, and I love both of those authors, so I totally get that perspective. You've written a book about being culturally responsive. There are a lot of misconceptions about what that term means. How does your framework of Ready for Rigor make it more operational? So one of the things I think is really important is for people to really be able to understand the differences between some of the language that's out there and we're using it interchangeably when it really is not. Like people talk about diversity and inclusion and then there's social justice and then there's culturally responsive or culturally relevant. And those three buckets often are talked about interchangeably when they're very, very different. I would say they're kissing cousins, meaning they they got some connection, but they are different. For example, multicultural education, that's where diversity and inclusion lives. That's where we're bringing in food, fabric, festivals, right? Just the artifacts and, and things of different cultures and perspectives so that there's social harmony, which is very different from social justice, which is about critical consciousness, kids talking and thinking about the sorts of things that are happening right now in the streets when we talk about social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement, no matter how you feel about it, we have a history as a United States that we just have to be able to have conversation about how are some of those things still happening. That's where you are going to experience that social justice. Now, those two, while very important, aren't centered around building students' brain power and learning muscles. That's where culturally responsive comes in. Gloria Ladson-Billings, Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, coined the term well over two decades ago. So this is not something someone's made up. Her research was really stellar in actually tracking teachers that were highly effective in helping students accelerate their learning and regain that academic prowess. And that's what 
culturally responsive teaching is aimed at based on that original research versus just kind of motivation or feel good or or what I call the kumbaya effect. So my ready for rigor frame is a way to help people understand the brain science and that you have to get students ready for rigor. And one of the ways that we do that is using culture as a cognitive scaffold. So culture shapes the way folks organize things in their head. It's not just food, fabric, and festivals. This is one of the things that we want to help teachers learn because the science of learning says when you are learning new things, you have to couple them with background knowledge. And so being able to kind of do that is what culturally responsive teaching is really about. Having kids, what I call chew on complex ideas and engage in productive struggle. But they can't do that if you haven't prepared the classroom in a way that helps them have a sense of belonging. Why? Because the brain needs to feel connected before it can create the space and pathway for deep learning to happen. That is a lot to take in. And I think those are some great distinctions between those ideas. Here's the thing that I will say, Shelley, it is complex. And this is why people really have to understand you just can't slap the label culturally responsive on anything. And it, if you're really interested in making sure all children can excel, regardless of language, ethnicity, racial background, then we will have to stretch ourselves as educators to learn that. And we can't be overwhelmed by the moving parts. So is it a little more complicated than just kind of, oh, we want to motivate kids? Yes, it is. And we can't be daunted by that. Agreed. One focus of your work has been creating better learning environments for children. Why does that matter? And what would these environments look like? Well, I think it's related to what I just said. This is where I get super, super excited about that neuroscience, right? The idea that the brain thrives on a sense of connection. We are social animals. Our learning is social. Having an environment where there's a sense of connection and belonging is really, really important. If you're coming to school and you're feeling like you're othered or marginalized or people are laughing at you or they're calling you names or even, even if they're just some somebody's joking and they're joking about your accent or the smell of the food you may bring or whatever, what we know is that releases a lot of cortisol and triggers the amygdala in the brain. So Once that triggers happened and once neurochemical cortisol rises, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex where learning happens. So a lot of students look like they're being compliant, right? You're quiet, you're following directions, but the brain in essence has shut down for the day. So creating an environment that is welcoming, that's free of that kind of racial bullying, that is has a true authentic sense of connection, leverages the social, emotional, and academic and integrates them is really, really key. So creating better learning environments for children is really about paying attention to the social aspects, right? There's a lot of work around social neuroscience and it is directly connected to all students having that sense of feeling of belonging and connection as the precursor to the kind of rigor and learning we want. So we can't say we want classrooms to be rigorous and learning to be rigorous, and yet and still the social aspect of the work is of the classroom environment is lacking. So this is, you know, all the research on social, emotional learning and development is really pointed us this way. And here's the thing I'll say about that. 
that doesn't come in a package. Oh, we're going to have 15 minutes of talk to your neighbor at time. And now we're going to go back to doing what we're doing. We're really talking about create an environment that there is a different climate in the classroom, that there are really a community of learners, that kids are scientists and they're investigating and they're talking about things and that every kid can find their way into that to the point where they're looking forward to getting into that classroom because they know some cool stuff is going to happen. So the learning and the social, social emotional parts are so intertwined. Well, even as adults, we do best in environments where we feel like we belong. And so that's so important for kids. So the question then is, why don't we do that for children? So this is where we can take an inquiry stance. Why are we allowing certain things to happen? If kids are giving us feedback that they don't feel intellectually safe or they, they're feeling bullied or certain things are happening, um, microaggressions are happening. Part of what we can't do is just shrug those off. So Part of creating that learning environment is the responsibility of the school leader. It's then the responsibility of instructional leadership team to make sure climate and culture amongst the adults is creating that kind of safety for kids. And again, when it's not happening, how have you built an adult culture that allows us to tell the truth about what's happening in our school rather than just having the veneer of politeness? Ooh, that's a great segue to the next thing that I wanted to talk about is because you are this student of neuroscience and I love learning about it. And a lot of people connect language development with literacy, but not necessarily inquiry. You've kind of alluded to why neuroscience shows us that inquiry is important, but maybe more about how teachers can use that. Yeah, I think the science of learning is really, really powerful in helping us frame this. And I will tell you, not enough of our teachers are getting the science of reading and the science of learning. And so again, we're in the business of growing brain, teaching brains how to read because that's not a natural act for humans. So you have to literally wire your brain for reading and you have to build the capacity to carry more and more of the cognitive load as you go through school. And the way that we do that, and I want to step back and give a little bit of kind of what's going on in the brain. The way we do that is through intellectual curiosity, right? When we get curious about something, we see there's a kind of a gap or confusion. And we have to help kids label those confusions as a good place. That That's actually the onset of your curiosity around learning. And the productive struggle around, oh, I see this these two complex things that I can't quite figure out, not as something to be frustrated about, but as the zone of proximal development. So both of those are a figuring out. And as students figure out, when we teach them that inquiry stance, then over time, they're able to develop, build what I call word wealth. Oh, that's an interesting concept. Here's the word that goes with that. Oh, I see this word part and it shows up there. So again, when we're talking about advanced decoding, when we're talking about building word knowledge, that those kind of intermediary skills that students beginning in second grade all the way through sixth grade really should be engaged in word wealth building and 
uh, word study, it is because you have an inquiry stance, not just because you're asking a question, but you're seeking the answer. And we have to, it goes back to what you were just asking about, what's the learning environment? If the learning environment is set up where you're just supposed to be quiet, sit in your seat, don't move until I tell you to move, that's not an inquiry environment. Because again, inquiry is a little messy, not in the sense of chaos, but it's inquiry, like kids are moving around and talking and Right. And so these are the things that we as adults want to get more comfortable with, learn how to do them in ways where we still have our authority and control over classroom, but we're allowing students exploration as they are moving toward older uh, ages and higher grades. You know, we don't want just to like chaos in the first grade, but the reality is students actually have to have an inquiry dance even in the first grade. What words are you curious about? And so being able to do something I did with my two kids, right? We just collect words. What word did you come by, come across today that sounded funny or, ooh, that reminded you of this one? So we just get curious about words. We get little strips and then we do deep dives, like, let's go find what, what's the history of that word? Where did it come from? Or how does it get used in math? And it's different when we're using it in English, right? Just take the word is, right? In math, there's a whole disciplinary literacy. But if we can't get kids curious about that, we can't stuff this knowledge in their head. Only the learner learns, right? Takes it up. That's right. Well, I mean, and I just was thinking we haven't been very successful stuffing things in kids' heads. And so there's a reason for that. Because that's not the way our brains work. But it is the way our schools are structured. So now <laughs> when you go back to the, the question you asked earlier, what are the big rocks? This is why everyone in their role has a part to play in creating the kinds of classrooms. So it may be a leader needs to help that adult community be okay with kids getting a little messy, being a little loud, right? How does a leader create the conditions there? So you're right. We keep doing things that we know are not the path. They're not aligned with science. They're not aligned with the learning theory. They're not al aligned with change management and how adults learn and thrive in a, a community. So why do we keep doing it is the question. And Albert Einstein said it best. The definition of insanity is continuing to do the same things and expect different results. Unfortunately, that just describes so much of what we as a world do. And especially, unfortunately, sometimes in education. But here's the thing, Shelley. Um, it's important to not think too globally. Because we can be really overwhelmed, like, ah, oh, everybody does that. Yeah, oh, we're stuck in that. Small, high leverage. What's the one thing we can change? Because again, we have to really believe it's doable and change is possible. But if we keep going global, oh, we always do that. Everybody does that. All adults do that. We've got to change our language because language shapes how the brain even approaches a problem as solvable or shrug of the shoulders. It's always going to be this way. So even when we're looking at our kids, this is a struggling reader. Uh, I'll just pass them on. They're just going to be slow. Or we get curious and take our own inquiry stance like, okay, we're do they have automaticity? Where are they with long vowels? Do you got automaticity with that? Okay, you're good there. You're accurate, but you don't have speed. Okay, let's see why you're you're slow. Okay, so the inquiry for teachers and supporting that. So again, 
the shrug of our shoulders through our own language, how we language a problem, ah, it's always been that way, really is going to impact how hungry adults are to kind of lean into the work. Language matters. Agreed. And I also just think focusing on the negative doesn't really ever solve any problems. And so I like looking at what's working and then trying to replicate it. Yeah, but here's the thing. (laughs) I'm always going to be able to help us see errors are information. So we don't want that veneer politeness and kindness and goodness. Well, let's just look at what's working. Scientists look at what went wrong, right? Edison Thomas Edison, who actually created that light bulb, said, every time I had a failure, I was able to understand how far next time to go down a path. So when we reframe errors as information, we actually empower students to take that inquiry stand. So again, yes, we want to replicate it if it's working, but if things aren't working, then we don't just try to get things that are working. We actually can stay in that space, but it takes some emotional fortitude and stamina for adults to stay in that place because we have urgency around wanting our children to be powerful readers and writers. Absolutely. I love the story about your mom allowing you to read books from the adult section of the library and the world that that opened up for you. I actually recognize myself in your story. You're an advocate for teaching nonfiction. Why is this so important? Well, again, I want to connect it to some of the things we've just talked about. In order to learn new information, here's the science of learning. In order to learn new content, you must mix it in your brain with your existing background knowledge or schema, right, or funds of knowledge. We talk about it in a variety of different ways. So what we know is this kind of elaboration, that not elaboration is, you know, more of, but actually kind of mixing together, like Cold Stone ice creamery or something, you know. <laughs> you get the ice cream and get your candy, sprinkles or whatever, and then she takes it to the Cold Stone, right? And for two minutes with two paddles, she's mixing it together. Well, that's what the brain does to actually turn inert information into usable knowledge. So what we do know is we read way too much fiction to children for way too long, particularly if they're behind, if they are behind because of language development or they're behind because they're coming to us not performing at grade level, then we have to actually help them build their background knowledge while they're actually learning content. So the best thing we can do is help them learn about things. And I don't, again, I'm not suggesting we're pouring it into them, that we're igniting their intellectual curiosity by having more nonfiction books that are fun and engaging, but they're learning about stuff. Little kids in first grade learn about trucks, (laughs) you know, or rocks, or like my kids, dinosaurs, right? But that can lead them to places you want them to go. So it's an anchor, a twist, not a bait and switch. Well, and all children are naturally curious. And so we just have to let them do that. But here's the thing, we don't. When we have a pedagogy of compliance, go into a classroom. And typically what we're trying to do is shush them. You're too wiggly. So there are a lot of things that actually dampen that curiosity. Then we want them to get to fourth grade and be curious. That's why all of these things that we've talked about are so interconnected. I see it. I'm really interested to know your thoughts on how we balance that idea of building background knowledge, especially in areas that are considered by some as part of a cultural canon that is generally white and male, 
while at the same time continuing to focus on culturally diverse literature? Well, I think there are two things in that question that we want to piece apart, right? There is nothing wrong with white men writing stuff and us reading it. Listen, I love me some William Faulkner, Henry James, Flannery O'Connor. I was an English major when I was at NYU and did my undergraduate in English with a concentration in writing. When I did my master's in teaching program, I did secondary English with the emphasis in, in writing instruction. So again, what I was able to do as a writing teacher, a composition teacher, is create more of a diversified canon. So again, mentoring text, matching text, what's the perspectives? Can we match this perspective? Because it doesn't mean that that perspective isn't valid simply because it's a white male writer. It's when you have a void and that's all you're offering. That's when we're talking about the fiction. Now, when we're talking about background knowledge with nonfiction, are we giving all students, not just black and brown children, Latino children, whatever the diversity that is in your school building, white children need diversity too. Otherwise they come up with the misconception that only white people did things and everyone else is not contributing. So part of what you're wanting to do is build their background knowledge, the depth of perspectives and experience, uh, the human experience comes in a variety of ways. And again, we're not, I'm not talking social justice themes. When you are having the diverse books and, and you, you have a canon in a civics class, then you've got to actually think about what are the variety of things that we could be reading, that build background knowledge or build an understanding of a perspective. Think about this, that the perspective is a mosaic. And in a mosaic, you can't just have one piece because that piece does not give you the whole picture. So this is what I love about it. And as an English major, I don't think it's we throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I think there's a lot of conversation where people have kind of over course corrected around social justice. But what I'm saying is, it's again, not a bait and switch or throw the baby out. This is about widening the aperture, letting more in and not being afraid of a different perspective and educating yourself as to why that perspective is such as it is. And again, knowing our, the history of our country, then we have some tensions around those big questions around race relations. And so really helping, that doesn't mean you're talking with kids about them but it just means that here is another perspective. Even if we're talking about trucks, diversity doesn't mean that we're always talking about racialized conversations. Now, children of color don't wanna only read books about civil rights and basketball, right? This is where thinking about the canon in a more holistic way is important, not just thinking, oh, we've gotta replace white male writers with diverse voices. They're, some of our best writers are white males in American literature. I, I'm a Shakespeare fan myself. Maybe. That's some good stuff. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I turned my daughter on to it. I was like, you know, at first she was like, oh, Shakespeare. I'm like, you really, he's like, Shakespeare's like got his hand on the pulse of stuff. You know, this is melodrama at its best, <laughs> you know? So it's pretty randy too. It, yeah, it, it is. If you know what he's really saying in many instances. And so I was delighted as a high school English teacher 
teaching my student what he was really saying, and they were shocked. But here's the point. This is why the inquiry comes in. Let's loop this all the way back around to that. Because on the surface, because we don't know those words, those aren't the 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 rowdy words, those aren't swear words in our current time. When you help them put it in a context, I would always see my students' eyes open wide, like, what is he talking about, right? And the, just the themes of gender and identity. And, you know, all you need to do is look at some of the comedies, switching identities and dress and, you know, oh my goodness. And really what he was talking about, not about being politically correct, but about the human experience. We don't need to be throwing that out, but there are other voices that are giving an other perspective of the human experience that is no less than Shakespeare's brilliance. And what we have a tendency to do is put someone like Shakespeare up on high and everybody else is down a plague or two because they are you know, voices of color. But that's not the case. What we've learned to understand and appreciate about some of the our, our best American writers really are reflected in some of the other voices that we've never given the stage to. So that's really, and that's our work as adults, is to actually broaden our own experience. So when we bring them to kids, we can help kids navigate that. I, I sometimes think we have that tyranny of or when we really are looking for the freedom of and. Yep. But it also means that you have courage as adults to change and not be afraid of ideas and be able to, you know, look together and not just be have this be about programs they're purchasing at a district level or what a school board's going to approve, that you really have to understand how is this author and the voice that they're bringing be uh, instructive? And is it reinforcing stereotypes or not? And so again, helping us understand that it is a both and is really important. That mosaic is really important to every student because we want them to have a full understanding of the human experience. Thank you. And I have similar thoughts on a lot of those topics. I've had several guests talk about literacy being part of the drive for social justice, and you alluded to that earlier. One of the purposes of culturally relevant instruction is to interrupt inequity by design, which is part of the overall goal of social justice. How do these concepts relate? Right. And here's the thing. Um, it's a great question, because I think when we talk about both of them, we have such a limited kind of mental model right? The picture that pops up in our mind is, again, social justice. We're only talking about issues of race and racism and oppression. When that's not necessarily the case, what I mean by linking the two and by inequity by design is the way in which, based on our history, we maintain kind of segregation was through cognitive redlining in the classroom, meaning there, our history is our history. We outlawed the teaching of reading and writing to folks of African descent for First Nation peoples, and that had an impact. Because here's why, reading changes your brain. And I, it's not just what you take in through reading, it's the very fact that when you rewire your brain for reading, the dendrites proliferate 
and you can carry more and more of the cognitive load. The stronger you become at the ability of reading, the more gray matter your brain has. When it has more gray matter, it carries more of that load, meaning it can do just like our computers run some programs in the back without everything's slowing down or shutting down, right? That's what I mean by that. So inequity by design was our original setting things up that were along racial lines. So to move out of that is not just a matter of us talking. It's a matter of helping students who are still being impacted by that regain that cognitive prowess. So that means we have to really help students become powerful readers, powerful writers. A lot of our writing is, an, our, our students' writing is anemic right now. A lot of them can't write it beyond five, you know, sentences in a so-called paragraph. And we keep teaching that dreaded five-paragraph essay. Friends don't let friends keep teaching that formula. And these are the things that add up to inequity. And it's by design because we keep doing it. So in order to stop change, We can't just like, oh, we're not going to teach that. Well, what are you going to do? Because only the learner learns. This is why my framework is called Ready for Rigor. How are we getting kids ready for this kind of rigor? So culturally responsive practice has at its core teaching kids the learning how to learn skills so that they can actually do that kind of intellectual work, right? The productive struggle that allows us to rub ideas together, to make things and take it apart and talk about it. We get smarter when we do that. You just look on YouTube where kids are making stuff and it's messy. And next thing you know, they've made a computer. (laughs) You know, I've got a new algorithm. I did some code. Why? Because they were trying things. There's a whole movement called maker education right? That is really about leveraging kids' intellectual curiosity, but also teaching them the skills of moving through being able to do that kind of heavy lift. So, you know, I try to link that science of learning, that regaining the cognitive capacity, because only the learner can level up their learning like that. So teachers have to be the personal trainer of students' cognition. This is including when we're learning, teaching them to read and they're learning to encode and decode and, you know, match your sound spelling correspondences, that word wealth I talked about through word study. All of these things are going to lead to that. So again, the way I come at it is probably a little more complex and people are, you know, usually looking for something plug and play and plug and play doesn't really lead into anywhere. Oh, where can I purchase a culturally responsive program? Well, you can spend your money on some stuff, but the reality is it may not actually get you what you want. So upending inequity by design by helping students become powerful readers, writers, learners is the only path I've ever seen forward in my 30 years as an educator. Love it. So you have mentioned that phrase, only the learner learns a couple of times, and it's one of my favorite phrases uh, that you use. But you also add that the learner has to believe that he or she can learn. How do we help build that academic mindset for students so that this becomes a reality? That's a really good question. And again, I want to go back to a little reframing and tweaking based on what the science of learning tells us. The science of learning tells us that competence precedes confidence. So mindset can't be something that we do. We, you know, have moved through the growth mindset movement. I just need kids to believe in themselves. Well, 
it's what we know about how people continue to learn and, and learn hard things is that you see progress. Our brain actually has something called the progress principle. This is why we wear Fitbits and track our progress, because when we see we're getting ahead a little bit, we're making progress, our brain secretes dopamine. That dopamine is the yummiest, stickiest thing in the brain and helps us want to do that hard thing again. So if there's no dopamine hit happening, there's nothing you can say to get the student to actually have that mindset. And that dopamine hit is only going to come because they're making progress. This is why I go back to what I said at the top of our, our talk together. And that was that the small, high leverage thing where the student starts to see, oh, I can do this. Oh, my goodness. And sometimes the student can't see it. And this is where we, being the personal trainer of their cognitive development, allow them by us noticing and naming like, oh, wow, three weeks ago, you could not do any of these 10 steps. Here we are three weeks later and you can do six of them, meaning you're not where you need to be. But dang, look how far you've come. That secretes even someone else pointing that out, as long as the student sees it, because here's another piece of neuroscience. We have what's called negativity bias, meaning we only pay attention to the bad things happening. So even the good things happening, we have to look at it, think about it, talk about it for up to 90 seconds to 120 seconds, a minute and a half to two minutes, where we actually bring it to our consciousness. Otherwise, the brain will just flush it. So again, we can't build academic mindset if kids can't see they're actually making progress, because the story they're telling themselves internally is, I'll never get this. So helping them change that narrative is also about helping to improve their competence and then noticing it. This is back to inquiry. So when inquiry is part of that, the student is always doing this gap analysis like, oh, wow, and paying attention to how they're getting better. So our teachers actually become human Fitbits for kids. That's right. The, I say the personal trainer of the cognitive development, because here's the thing, the Fitbit only tracks if you did it, but you still need the personal trainer to help you understand how to do it and how to level up. It is a piece of technology. The coach is a powerful, transformative voice for the student. And we don't want to over scaffold. We already do that. This is about how do we as adults get okay with their productive struggle? How do we reframe errors as information and help kids be okay with that? Those all are components of having the right mindset, but they come because we actually have experienced them through the learning that we're doing. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. Wow. Zaretta, thank you so much for talking with me today. I have learned so much from our conversation. I appreciate what you're doing and have done for students and teachers. Thank you for having me. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network podcast.